It's that time again. We go beyond the jive. Join our hosts, John Swan and Natalie B. Brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. All you hive jive junkies out there, this is the hive jive. Well, hello. Hello, John. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. Peachy. Your, your top is very cute. Oh, thank you. The, well, for those of you who are listening, that then you're missing out. <laughs> yeah, you're missing out. The, the buttons that are right at the edge of the, the arms and the shoulder there almost kind of remind me of like suspenders, but they don't, they don't actually go up over the shoulders. It's just like a pattern there, but it almost right. kind of reminds me of suspenders. And I could see this as, uh, I don't know, they, it could go a lot of different directions because I can't see anything else, but I could totally put a sailor hat on you at the moment. There you go. It's very French, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would totally, yeah. It would fit with any of those styles of hats, but for whatever reason, like sailor was the first thing that came to mind, but I like it. There's, it's cute. There, thank you. There's something uh, very French about sailor stripes, t-shirts and shirts, right? We yeah. love that for some reason. I'm not sure why, but you know, it's a very popular thing in French style. Like, in France. Hey, there you go. Whatever works. Yeah. That's all good. Um, so, so what are we talking about today? Well, it, this is a, uh, for anybody who has listened to the main segment episode, episode number 146 that just came out on Monday, um, date-wise would have been February 7th of 2022. That episode was the Natural Beekeeping Corner Part 10, and it was an interview between Natalie and Mr. James Lee. And they get into some interesting conversation and topics, but the, the overarching theme of it kind of hits on a few bullet points. Um, for instance, bias amongst beekeepers, biased in general, but we're going to try to focus this, you know, on, on beekeeping in general, but um, bias, dissonance, you know, different cognitive type things there, how it can relate, empathy, being able to empathize with another beekeeper to maybe build up a little bit of tolerance on the differences between practices and stuff. So we're going to kind of bridge that episode over into just a general conversation, not necessarily following uh, the specific subject matter, but using it as a jumping off point and go through and kind of see where that leads us. And one of the one of the things in there that is kind of the bigger point about like the tolerance and the differences and having a bias, bias can be anything. Bias can be when you first started beekeeping, whoever taught you, taught you the style that they prefer because they have a bias towards mm-hmm. that style. Um, Natalie may have a bias, you could say, towards no. top bars. <laughs> no, I don't. Or natural treatment free. Or natural treatment free. <laughs> um, you know, so we all, we all have our bias. And that's one of the things that whenever I say like beekeeping is beekeeping, the, the container that the bees are in doesn't necessarily matter so much. If you started with a top bar, that's going to be what's most natural to you. If you started with a Warre, same thing, Langstroth, same thing. So it's, it's all kind of just a matter of perspective. It doesn't mean that we can't learn the other thing. But mm-hmm. one of the problems we find ourselves having is that we do create these bias and then we do not share the other opinions or options that are out there. And that's one of the things that on the main hive jive, I tried really hard, especially the first season and a half 
I know to not be biased about anything, to show you all the different options of beekeeping that you could possibly do, and to tell you there is no right or wrong answer. It's whatever fits your needs and desires best. Mm -hmm. But if you go to a beekeeping club, that's not the case. You know, there's and a, yeah, there's a very, you know, heavy bias in um, a lot of the beekeeping clubs based on what the creators of the club or the people that are leading the club at the time or the majority of the beekeepers philosophy is. And that bias is very often not quite tolerant of other people's goals no. or styles. No. So this is an off subject thing. Um, and I think that at this point you have gotten your feet wet enough that you might have already started seeing some little glimmers of this, but maybe not. It's early in the year. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the things that just absolutely blew my mind about beekeeping as a group and a culture was the first time that I ever had to do anything legislative related with laws in the state of Texas specifically. Right. And all of a sudden, talk about something that can polarize people. Mm -hmm. People that you had known and worked with and thought that you were on the same page suddenly turned into strangers that you had never talked to before, and yeah. you had no idea where this perspective and point of view was coming from, and everybody was against everybody, and they were all lashing out. But the weird thing was what was trying to be accomplished was for the betterment of everybody, and both parties agreed in their own verbiage, this is the bigger catch here, is, is in their own way of saying it. They both agreed on what needed to be done, but they couldn't agree on how to do it. And partly they didn't like that the other person was going to do it or vice versa. Like it was very strange to see how polarizing it was. And it was almost disconcerting or uh, like a big disconnect that you suddenly see within this, this group of this community, because up to that point, Oh my God, you're a beekeeper. I'm a beekeeper. That's so awesome. We both we love you. We love each other. We love oh, our babies. Yeah. We got all these things in common, you know, and then you start bringing up some of these other things and, and it, it does get very polarizing, but that was the, that was the apex. That was the peak of what I experienced, but you can dial that down greatly to like what you guys were talking about, the difference between treatment and treatment free. Right. And that is a very polarizing statement. I was going to say that's not dialing it down at all. <laughs> well, from from the legit right. the legislative, right, you know, we're right, changing right. your laws, dialing it down from that. Um, mm -hmm. Treatment versus treatment free can be very polarizing, but at the same time, it is it is still beekeeping. And and in your synopsis that you put out there for the episode, you had a statement in there about how. The fears of just because somebody else's goals and fears do not line up with your own goals and fears does not mean that they are wrong. Right. You're in different places. You have different things going on. Uh, a new one of the things that came to mind when I was listening to part of it was you talked about how when somebody first gets into beekeeping and they're new to it, they kind of get overwhelmed with some of these fears that are instilled on them by their local club or by whatever they have uh, used to kind of get their feet wet in beekeeping. Mm -hmm. And one of those fears is something that's come up in the podcast before where I just started beekeeping. I only have one hive and they have, they're overloaded with mites. They're going to die. I've got my person that gave me the bees is natural. And they're saying, do not do anything. Don't treat them. But I spent a lot of money on them and I don't want to lose them. What mm -hmm. do I do? Mm -hmm. You know, and you can find yourself stuck in those situations where are you choosing the lesser of the two evils? What's truly right? What's not, you know, 
Um, and is that a great first impression for somebody to have to spend, you know, $500 on bees and lose them because somebody else said you absolutely cannot do this or you absolutely must do that, you know, like regardless which direction it is. Well, first of all, I mean, I would be weary of anybody telling you, you can absolutely not do this or do that, or this is impossible or, or anything like that. First of all, somebody tells me I cannot do something. I'm going to do it. And not only once, <laughs> but I'm going to do it twice <laughs> because I'm just going to show them that I can do it. Uh, that's neither here nor there, though. I was going to say that um, we all have different goals. We all have different philosophies. But I think in the end, we all care about or animals, or for the most part, making sure that they stay alive at the very least. Not necessarily, you know, there's various degrees of caring about their well-being, but we all want them to stay alive. First of all, because it is a financial investment when you're buying them, or even if you've worked hard to maintain bees that you've gotten from catching swarms or anything, you have equipment, you have all kinds of um, uh, time and work that you put into there and all kinds of expectations that you want out of them. So if you're um, if you're not caring for them the right way, they very easily die. Now, that's about an average of what, 30, 40, 45% um, across the board every year that people lose their colonies. That's huge. In nature, it's, it, I think it's important to remember, first of all, that there, those fears, while being justified, they also don't really match what happens in nature because in nature, a first-year colony, the risk of failure is about 70%, right? And colonies die in nature, you know? So I'm not quite sure that when we keep them, we are doing them worse than they would in nature to start with. The other thing is that depending on the scale and also the goals for production or just pleasure, you you might not have the same importance on uh, your bees surviving or not. If you are a brand new beekeeper that's purchased bees and this is very expensive and it's getting more and more expensive, you probably don't want to lose them. The, parad the, the paradox here is that if you buy only one colony, then you're actually risking their, their lives a lot more than if you bought two or three or even four colonies. And, and I know it's expensive, but if you're going to do that, I would recommend everybody buys at least two colonies or starts with two colonies so that they can help, you know, share resources and, and troubleshoot more easily. But honestly, if you can't afford it, I would say start with three or four. It's not that much more work. And your chances of keeping them alive or getting into the next season with the same amount, if not more colonies, is much higher. Um, but, but those fears, like you said, we all have them. We don't want to lose our bees. Yeah, there's, just... a, there's an emotional attachment there as well. Not only just a financial investment, but a lot of times an emotional investment as well, because some of these colonies, um, you guys mentioned in the show, different organizations, and one of those being like Hives for Heroes, um, mm -hmm. Some of these colonies are people's lifeline. It is their their saving grace of be, about being able to get out of their head and do something that is beyond themselves to help them kind of focus and calm down and and stay sane in in a way. So There's some mindfulness to it, right? And you can you can be present in the now and just kind of uh, it's almost meditative and it's healing because of it. And, and you invest yourself emotionally in it. And, and if you lose it, then maybe you, you know, you might, 
it's it's something very delicate. You want to do it right when you're doing it for that purpose. You want to make sure that the chances of the colony doing well are higher because if it fails, that might transfer into a, a feeling of failure right. in a way, which we all have experienced as beekeepers. We all have had, you know, if you're two years into beekeeping, you've killed colonies. And, and that is very devastating. And it, it takes a while to realize that we're not perfect. We do our best and we're trying and it might not always work. Not all colonies of bees are meant to survive. My big philosophy and my bias and actually my my experience is that if you're going to treat them, uh, they're not necessarily going to be surviving more. And, and, and so you just kind of stick with it and, and do what you think is best. In my opinion, I don't want to subject my my emotional attachment to my bees is to their well-being. Somebody that's commercial might not be attached as emotionally to a colony to the colonies that they have. It's more a means to an end to make a living, to make a profit, right? So they're not looking at it the same way as I do. I do still make a living out of it and I make a very good living out of it, but I I look at their well-being as my it's kind of like the feedlots and the the grass-fed things, right? There's also that philosophy. Not everybody agrees with one or the other. So all that is at play when you're keeping bees and all that needs to be understood. It doesn't mean we're wrong um, because we're doing things different from the other ones, but it's not also because we think we're right then the others are wrong, right? right? So that tolerance that you were mentioning there is very important, that empathy for their fears and their wanting to keep their colonies um, healthy needs to come at play so that we can understand their very uh, personal choices on how to keep their bees. So this is a, this is a sidestep. This is kind of a, a hard jump in there, but when you go through and you, like you mentioned commercial beekeepers and you mentioned even things like feed yards versus grass fed um, and antibiotic or hormone free, you know, things mm-hmm. like that when you're talking about meat and poultry production, but there's ways that people can cheat that. And you can have an animal that was raised on hormones and antibiotics, and then they take them off of that and they take them out of the feed yard and they spend the last X amount of months of their life on grass pasture. And it gives time for that other stuff to leave their system. And then they will turn around and sell that as grass fed, grass raised or antibiotic free, meaning it didn't have it at the time of processing. And unfortunately- I am biting my tongue. I know. So I'm going to, I'm going to actually jump over here. I'm going to make you read something that you read to me just a minute ago. Just that, just that synopsis of the article, um, commercial beekeepers and, and kind of, you know, we, we oftentimes lump things on commercial beekeepers because they may not have the best interest of the bees in mind in the forefront is so much as the dollar sign. A lot of times they, they will get to the extent that they want to keep them alive so that they don't lose their shirt. Right, exactly. Um, but but is it really that they're doing what they should for the bees? So in this article that you came across, and unfortunately this one is behind a paywall, so we're and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. So we're we're not going to share this. But I just want you to read that synopsis about what one of these commercial beekeepers um, had done to try to make efforts back in 2016 towards pesticides and and chemical treatments. Well, he's got 92, he did have in 2017, 92,000 colonies. I think he was the largest by far commercial beekeeper in the United States. And his name is uh, Brett Ad Adie. 
And um, he does pollination contracts for, for California and other places with arch, uh, apple orchards and, and other uh, crops. Um, but he, you know, he would park those 92,000 hives on a, a 3,000 acre ranch and then he uh, overwinter, overwinters them away from big ag and, and pesticides and anything that can harm them in areas that have a lot of water sources. And he would bring them out for pollination contracts. And he said that um, in his opinion, a lot of the issues were, were um, initially he thought that the issues were uh, viruses and he didn't believe in colony collapse, right? Initially, and then he realized that his bees, he started losing them as well. And he came to the conclusion as the largest beekeeper in the United States that knows his um, business and has 92,000 colonies he works with. So he has the stats and the understanding of the superorganism to go along with it. Um, he came to the conclusion that basically the pesticides were probably what was killing his bees and in more particular neonicotinoids. So I know this is a controversial subject, but there's a reason it's controversial. Um, we have to remember that there's a lot of um, power players out there that are trying to control the narrative. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. But he ended up uh, suing the EPA in uh, 2016. And he, uh, he and a group of other commercial beekeepers sued the EPA under the guise of EPA's actions and inactions have caused both acute honeybee kills and chronic effects leading to excessive bee colony mortality, bird mortality, nationwide water and soil contamination, and other environmental and economic harms. So that was his his battle yeah. uh, force. And that's that is actually a very valid point. And we need people like that to stand up that are the the major players in the game because there are far more beekeepers out there, even in just the United States, but across the world than you would imagine. But the the trick though, is that there's more of us that have one or two hives than there are the gentleman that has 95. It's like 98, 99% of us that have bees. We just don't have the majority of the colonies. We have right. a small number. And so therefore we have a small voice. Whereas that one gentleman who provides, you know, most of the yeah. pollination contracts to the country has a larger say and a larger voice. So we do need those individuals to stand up and be able to speak out against that stuff. But my own experience, and, and it doesn't mention this, it doesn't go into this in the article whatsoever, but my own experience though, is that most of those commercial beekeepers, even though they may be fighting neonicotinoids and they may be, you know, taking to task the, the major companies that produce these types of synthetic chemicals, still use synthetic chemicals to treat their bees for mites. And that's what and, the article didn't say. Yeah, if and the article, the article doesn't mention that, but, but it's one of those things that does that not become a catch-22 or is that not in some way almost hypocritical to turn around and say, you have to stop using these chemicals on your fields and orchards because they're killing my bees, but I'm going to still put in Amitraz, you know, and possibly kill yeah. my bees because I'm, right. I'm trying to treat the mites. And that, that is still a chemical that is absorbed into the wax and then can be leached back out and, and has effects on the bees. And that's one of the reasons that that they tried to start moving away from those things and they did create the organic treatments, but even the organic treatment is still something that we've talked about in the past. You know, if you eat a thousand bananas, you're going to die of cancer from bananas. If you did it every day kind of thing. So formic okay, so, acid naturally yeah. occurring, but not in those levels, you know, it would never not be in, in that those level in a concentration. Yeah. 
Right. And then the, that's the dose that makes the poison, right? right. We, we have also arsenic in honey. Do we uh, well, treat unfortunately, the, because it comes arsenic? out of the, the uh, <laughs> pollution in the air, but yeah. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, at some point you got to ask yourself, you can poison yourself with water. Right. And, and I, I, I think that that number of organic treatments is actually organic acids. That's where it came from, but things like essential oils or, all the acids, formic acids, um, oxalic acid, hot beta acids, all have concentrations that are potentially toxic to the bees, right? I can put some vinegar in my salad, but I'm not going to shower in battery acid as my example, always, right? <laughs> so uh, you just kind of, kind of keep in mind that it always takes a toll on the colony. But beyond that, and that's, again, my own bias, but also... It, you know, hopefully a way for people to think of it in other terms, even if you believe in treating your bees, maybe I can plant a little seed in, and, and um, help you be mindful of the fact that anytime you help that colony, you're putting pressure on the pest, in this case, the veromite or anything else that, that is a pest of the colony, because you're afraid and you're putting pressure on that, that, uh, that mite and you're not putting that pressure on the bees because the press, the very presence of those mites is putting a certain level of pressure on them to either find a way to live with them or get rid of them so that they don't get impacted. And by helping the, the bees, we're not letting them, we're not affording them that evolutionary advantage that they can get really quickly uh, in the grand scheme of things because they have so many generations in a cycle of a year that that can happen a lot faster. We're thinking in terms of human beings, oh, it's gonna take forever for us to evolve, but it takes a lot faster. It's, it doesn't take as long for insects that have multiple generations of every season. And, and there's a lot of evidence out there that you know in Africa and in Jamaica uh, and other countries that don't have the means to purchase those expensive treatments, um, they have gone around and gotten out of the problems with the veromites really quickly in three to five years. And, and Les always says, you know, if we had stopped treating um, years ago, we would not be needing to treat anymore. This has been 30 years. The definition of insanity is keep doing, doing the same, same thing, thing and hope for different results, results. <laughs> right? So, but, but, you know, I mean, that's part of it that's um, bias. There's part of it as uh, experience with your own colonies. And then there's part of it as research, more objective, with the understanding that research is not always necessarily objective because of the funding and the bias of the it. research, if that's we're going right. back to bias, right? Yeah, that's so. that's absolutely correct. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about when it comes into mites and pesticides and treatment-free, but there's there's other aspects of this that actually fall exactly in line with it that other beekeepers do. So one of these things is empathizing or being able to walk a mile in somebody's shoes mm -hmm. and at least understand maybe where they're coming from. So you may listen to um, one of the episodes and we're talking about something natural related and you may not agree That's with right. how that goes. But at the same time, say, and it, it could be either way, say you do treat or you don't treat, but say you find a swarm really late in the season and you catch that swarm, be it from your own colonies or out there in the wild, and you do everything possible to go through and raise that colony up because 
you want more bees. That's right. What you've just done has enabled a colony that in nature would have, have died. died. That's right. And you've, in, you've allowed genetics and a habit, a genetic predisposition mm -hmm. to swarm late in the year, which is not advantageous for the bees. If the bees swarm in August, it's maybe not great, but if they swarm in November, that mm -hmm. colony was doomed. I don't care where you're at in the United yeah. States, they weren't probably going to make it because most of the places don't have a flow at that point in time of the year. They've got to spend all the resources they took with them to draw wax, but then there's no food out there to fill that wax. And they're not going to have enough comb to raise enough bees to get a big enough cluster to survive the winter and regulate the heat. So that colony was doomed. They should have died, but you prevented them from dying because you wanted more bees. So you caught them, you fed them, you enabled them, you gave them more comb. You did everything against the he nature of the bees. Thing. Yes to create this colony that you desperately wanted. Now, maybe later that colony may fail or maybe right. that colony does great or maybe they, they do exactly what they did and how you got them. They create this genetic line that always wants to swarm late in the year. And now they're spreading those genetics to your That's other right. colonies as you're going through an interbreeding and mating. Even if you don't realize you're doing it, if you miss a swarm, and they raise a new queen and she goes out and mates, she could very easily get some of these genetics and bring them back. And now it, it starts this other thing. So even if you are treating or are not treating, you are still making decisions consciously or not mm -hmm. about the evolution of your bees in their lifetime. You do it when you pick the traits. I want to raise this colony because they're less defensive. I want to raise this colony because they produce more honey. So I'm mm -hmm. going to raise queens off of those two colonies. You have made a choice and you're right. doing a genetic evolution there. So don't necessarily then turn around and be very pessimistic or biased towards somebody who says, I don't want to treat because I think they need to evolve. And you and say, well, that's not, a, that you shouldn't do that. That's not your choice. You're doing it as a beekeeper every day but then you use it against somebody else because you don't agree with why they're doing it. So that's a very good point. There, every time you do some selection for the bees, you might not be picking the right criteria and the right uh, genetics to be propagated. Whether you're selecting four aspects of anything, which in the end leads to inbreeding depression and the loss of hybrid vigor, or you're propag propagating those weak genetics, like you just very pertinently said, which in the end is bad in itself. But I think that you're right. We need to realize that when we do that, when we're wanting to uh, um, make all, uh, have all our dinks and, and poor colonies survive because we don't want to have losses. We want to keep them alive. We want to have more bees. We're all addicts. Look, getting into beekeeping, you turn into an addict. I'm Welcome sorry. To Beekeepers Anonymous. <laughs> exactly. My name's John. I have a problem. <laughs> I, I'm close to 250 now. And it's just kind of like, it just keeps going. It goes really crazy, really fast. But realizing that whatever your choice is, has consequences, like you just said, matters. Because you might be treating and you might be, um, uh, and I've done it, right? I've, I've helped out colonies that were dinks and maybe would not have made it otherwise without feeding them, without, oh, sometimes I have fed them. That's another thing. You've helped them where, you know, in the end, that was a swarm that was not meant to overwinter. Um, but, but you're really making choices for the genetic pool. You're stacking the deck against natural evolution 
you're stacking the deck against resiliency and 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 just kind of strengthening the the overall pool in your area right and that's something that we need to be mindful of and and that speaks to the underlying um um perception of why we do what we do right you don't have really good reasons but step back a little bit and see the forest behind the tree right right because you you again consciously or unconsciously made a choice that has now affected the genetic evolution of not just that colony, but the other colonies out there. And you may have done it out of greed and a hoarding sense of, I need more bees. You may have done it out of a sympathy or empathy of, oh my God, I love them so much. I don't want them to die. And, you know, there could be any reason in there, but you have still altered the genetic course of that colony for better or worse. And a lot of times in that instance, for the worse, but so keep that in mind the next time you chastise somebody because they turn around and they say, I am trying to choose genetics that can fight this thing so that I don't have to treat and do these things. Well, you can't do that. You can't manipulate that. It's not right for you to choose, but, but you chose, you just didn't realize you were making that same type of choice. It was under a different circumstance. And so, I love this discussion because I just realized that I do the same thing sometimes, right? I'm like, I want this colony to survive. I'm going to help it. I'm not going to go as far as treating, but I'm doing the same thing. And this conversation is actually uh, uh, very interesting because it's making me think that, you know, I was starting to think I, I don't need to feed colonies. I don't need, I don't want to provide them with sugar syrup and all this stuff. And this is kind of comforting me in my instincts that, you know, if they make it, they make it and, and they'll be stronger for it. There's, but I have to empathize with people that have one or two colonies. Right, because you, I can if you've say got 250 this, and you lose one, I can one, say it's this no from deal. my position, that's right. I can make up the numbers. I don't lose that much because I'm experienced and and, and whatever my my um, practices work for us and, and our bees and we don't push them for honey. So we're not looking at the same kind of, we allowing them to do brood breaks and, and that's healthy for them. So our practices are, are helping us with what we're doing. So it has to work for you as well. But I we have to be as big, big or beekeeper uh, mindful of the fact that some people don't have that luxury because they don't have the same number of bees or the same experience. There's the Dunning, uh, the Dunning-Kruger effects. We were talking about that on that nat- on natural episode, beekeeping yeah. corner. And it's basically the people in a nutshell, um, and, and, and James Lee might have a, an issue with my way to describe it, but uh, in a nutshell is people that don't know, that don't have the skills, have an overinflated estimation of their skill level, but they don't know what they don't know. And then on the flip side, you have people that are more experienced that will assume that everybody else has that common knowledge at the very basic level, but not everybody does. So when we have those conversations, we also need to be mindful about that bias, which this is what the Dunning-Kruger effect is. And we need to realize that we need to meet halfway. We need to take into account and empathize, like you were saying earlier, with what the other side uh, is uh, coming from, where where they're coming from, what their biases are, what their knowledge level is, what their experience is, what their goals are. And it's never a black and white answer. And it shouldn't be a me versus you. It shouldn't be that tribal. My thinking personally is that a lot of... um, 
doctors in the field of beekeeping have a vested interest in beekeepers being tribal and fighting uh, over those treatments versus no treatments, commercial versus, you know, small scale and backyard beekeepers, because that's kind of like throwing red herrings. And I mentioned that in the natural beekeeper corner as um, it's distracting us. We're all busy in fighting where big ag and pesticide companies are, you know, creating a lot of the problems that we're fighting over in the end. And the veromites, in my opinion, is just a symptom of an underlying problem that if we fix that, we're not going to have the problems that we do with the veromites and we're not going to have to treat them as much kind of a thing. Yeah. Right. Now that's, that's, that's an absolute perfect synopsis of that, <laughs> you know, bringing that all together. So I think we need to look at the bigger picture is basically what I'm saying. And if we stop fighting and we take a step back and we don't judge others for what they believe, then we need to start seeing the solutions and what we need to do for the well-being of the bees. That's going to be good for commercial beekeepers. That's going to be good for backyard beekeepers. That's going to be good for everybody. Somebody said to me, the problem is, um, uh, so there was a big discussion about commercial and, and all this stuff and, and, they were saying, well, we need the commercial beekeepers because without them, we are not going to have any food, right? And, but in a way, you know, and people are going to starve. And I'm like, well, maybe the system will adjust, right? There's an homeostasis where well, right. it's basically a balancing effect of things. If you have less food, you have fewer people anyway. Right. I mean, ultimately, that would be the scenario. Yeah. Over time, that's what will happen. That will balance out. <laughs> and the race forward to uh, intensive agriculture, intensive this and that, it's only allowing more people. And, and when does it stop? Right. I mean, the resources on this planet are finite. Well, the, the other part of that, too, is that it's it's backwards from the reality of it is backwards from the way that it's presented. Mm -hmm. um, oh, well, we, we, you know, you, the beekeepers need to blah, blah, blah. But the, the beekeepers are just trying to keep up. Like mm -hmm. they aren't the ones that created the current agricultural wheel and cycle and how that goes. They're they not. are just desperately struggling to try and keep up. If it were up to them, they would not vote to triple the size of the almond orchards in California That's because right. they already know it's not sustainable. Sustainable right. farming and sustainable living used to be localized and it was community-based efforts and community-based things. You may have a couple of beekeepers in that community. You may have a couple of people that raise chickens or everybody may have a mix of that. You've got a farm where you've got a couple of hives. You've got some hens and a rooster. You've got a couple of cows. You've got some goats. You got a pig, you know, whatever. And you grow some vegetables or maybe your neighbor grows vegetables and you do the husbandry over the animals. And then you all share and trade with each other so that it balances out. But we've taken all that away and we have commercialized agriculture to this massive machine that just cannot be stopped. And when they do that, they go through and they say, we want this entire swath of country just to produce corn. And we want this swath of country just to produce wheat. When normally it would have been producing a variety of things throughout the seasons yeah. that would have sustained its local economy, but now it's not even going to the local economy. It's being shipped overseas or it's being sent here. You know, it's there's all these different things going on, and the beekeepers are literally just desperately trying to keep up. If the beekeepers all stopped, and I'm not saying that they should, but to go back to your if there's not enough food, <laughs> that something's gonna have to change. If the right. beekeepers all stopped, 
yes, it would put some pressure on everybody to try to rethink that. You know, if, if an area cannot sustain millions of acres of orchards of a specific type of thing, then maybe that needs to be changed. But at this point, is there any turning or going back? Because so much has been invested in it. So much money is behind it. All those big behind the curtains names are involved in it in one way or another. You know, agriculture, pesticide, chemical companies, your all of it is intertwined in there because they all feed off of right. each other. You know, that's right. And so they're all behind there pushing that. So the unfortunate reality today, and I saw this whenever people started thinking that the bees were going to go extinct. That all started because there were a few species of bee, not honeybees, not Western or European honeybees, but of a bee that lived in Hawaii that was put onto the endangered species list. Right. That native bee caused this whole other thing where people were like, oh my God, the bees are going extinct. We've got to help. And there were some factions out there that instead of looking at how they could help the bee, started looking at how they could create other things to do the bee's job. You have yeah, miniature robotics. drones and robotics <laughs> and things that can go out there and they can do all this pollination. So the reality is even today, if every beekeeper in the world said, no, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not taking my bees out there to pollinate your almonds. What would happen is the money would shift and they would come up with something to replace us. That's, that's, the, that's the scary truth of it. So a, a lot of things to unpack here because I, I love all those points. So the first point I would say, Big commercial beekeepers at the time in 2017 were getting $200 per hive to pollinate almond orchards, right? And that's a lot of money. And they had to do that because money from honey was not profitable anymore because of the imports of fraudulent or, or you know, honeys from all over the world that are not always honey. That could be rice syrup tasting like honey. That could be high fructose corn syrup tasting like honey. We talked about this a little bit, but it, it basically what it did is that it tanked the price of honey, meaning the beekeepers couldn't make enough money to make a living out of honey sales anymore. They switched over to uh, pollination and uh, the big ag started increasing the prices to entice them to do that. And the other thing that that article was talking about um, is the almond orchards used to flood the almond fields with warm water to prevent frosts of the budding trees. And because water is so expensive, especially in California, and, and this becoming a scarce resource in itself, and it's not really very efficient to do it that way, they ended up um, getting rid of all the underlying, you know, weeds and everything that were part of the biodiversity and the ecosystem that was functioning in, 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 in a healthy loop. And because those were trapping cold air and contributing to almond orchards freezing, uh, and so they decided to put all those herbicides, all those fungicides, all these things, and that's what ended up being so toxic to the bees, right? There's a lot of pollinators. It's not just the bees. The other thing that you were mentioning is, um, yeah, that that's whole uh, save the bees kind of a thing, the hashtag save the bees, right? Really, the honeybees, we, we can, there's so many ways that as beekeepers, we can help them. And yes, there's been losses, but you know, there's also a mindfulness about the fact that there's native bees that are competing with the uh, honeybees, and they're often like the rusty bumble batch, uh, bumble, rusty patch bumblebee. bumblebee. Yeah. 
uh, that's the one that's basically on the list of endangered species. There's a lot of other native bees and, and more solitary, less used social bees that are struggling pollinators of all kinds, butterflies, all kinds of things that are happening because we're poisoning our environment. Monoculture. So what happens with monoculture is that you have pests of soybeans and corn. And because we're packing those humongous fields full of the same crop and we're not rotating those, we're creating uh, massive pest infestations at time, which require those pesticides to keep them crops alive. So I, uh, there's, there's a couple of things, a couple authors I wanted to mention. The first one is Richard Louvre, L-O-U-V. He wrote a book called The Last Child in the Woods and a bunch of other books about how we can revert to nature. And like you were saying, instead of relying on the importation and transportation of crops, we can grow them locally. We can start going back to some of that nature and, and do some of these things uh, ourselves. That's why I highly believe in the top hive and keeping uh, beehives, even on small areas for, for people to grow their own honey, have the control of what's in their hive and in their honey. And, and just kind of um, bypass, you know, pollinate your garden and grow your own food. Uh, it's going to be more, it's going to yield more with your own bees in the area, right? So all this stuff is kind of a, a, a loop that we need to keep in mind. The other um, author, I mean author, it's a researcher that used to work for the um, USDA, I think. Uh, but anyway, he uh, his name is Jonathan Lundgren, and he's talking about that rotation of the crops instead of keeping uh, that huge big ag monoculture thing, that would that's still feasible. That's something we could do. The problem is that just like you have um, the Walmarts and the Amazons that are absorbing the local businesses that are smaller, which cannot make a living anymore uh, with the current you know, uh, prices for their products, like the smaller scale commercial beekeepers that were absorbed by Mr. AD himself, right? Or other bigger commercial, there's a, what do you call that? A concentration? No, it's a, a consolidation. Uh, there's more and more of the bigger actors and less and less of the smaller ones as they're getting swallowed by the bigger actors. It's yeah. true across the board. It's true in retail, it's true in agriculture, it's true in beekeeping. And I think that um, that's what's causing. Are you hearing little chicks? In there the was background? a there was a screech <laughs> in the background. I was like, "What was that?" John has chicks uh, that are that he's raising They're for the in season. The studio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and even though he's got a, a really good microphone, I think he's getting distracted by the that one. That one was loud. That that was like like somebody <laughs> snatched it up off the ground or something. Like it screamed. That's why I was like, "What the heck?" Sorry, <laughs> that was. Total derailment of train of thought. <laughs> That's funny. He just fed them before the, the call and he says, well, maybe I should have done that afterwards. They're getting really excited. <laughs> yeah, they were really, really happy. But I don't know. I don't know what that was. I think one of them must have jumped on the other one's head or something. There was like, oh, my. Yeah. it was a scream. Screaming bloody murder. So no, anyway, um, there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot of considerations. It's not a black and white uh, kind of a, a problem. and But it's just... You know, there's a lot of people that can think about this. That's not just the commercial beekeepers. That's not just the backyard beekeepers. If we all put our heads together, we're all smart people. We're doing beekeeping. It's a tough, tough one, right? Yeah. And so I, I, I'm a firm believer that beekeepers are smart people because otherwise they wouldn't be beekeepers anymore. They get out of it, right? 
Well, at least I would say I was I was three gonna... years into it, four years into it. If you have done it for three, four years and if you've been successful and you've stuck with it, then you're smart. Beekeeper. I was I was gonna bring <laughs> up I was gonna bring up the conversation about the barber and the Oh, uh, I love that have, conversation. Used to have hives, but doesn't because they all died. And That's my right. synopsis was he didn't know anything about anything that came out of his mouth. <laughs> so that kind of went hand in hand with what you were saying. You know, if you know right. what you're talking about and you're a good beekeeper, then you'll still be a beekeeper. Right. Um, so then that magic three years into it. If you're still a beekeeper after that, then you you figured it out. If yeah. not, you're not really a beekeeper. <laughs> so one of the... Um, one of the things that if you if for the listeners if you're if you are more interested in like the agricultural aspect of it that you can do if you have not already ken and i like gushed about this a couple years ago whenever it first came out but go out there and watch the movie the pollinators the documentary because not only does it talk about you know honeybees obviously but it goes really in depth to sustainable farming rotating crops the difference in dead soil versus live soil that has lots of microbes and roots and worms and things in it versus just this hard chunk rock of dirt um it talks about yeah it talks about rotating the crops it talks about going through and putting in like if there's a specific pest that can i don't remember how they specifically did it it was like there was a type of squash beetle that would cause havoc but that squash beetle was very 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 preferential towards a specific plant so they would plant one row of that plant as a sacrificial offering. Yeah, like the drone brood comb. Exactly. Like us using drone brood comb to, to attract mites. They would attract all the pests to that row. And then if they needed to do something, they could deal with just that row. And they weren't treating everything else or they weren't worrying about the pests spreading to the other stuff because they had the food they really preferred. And they right. left the other crops the farmer was actually trying to grow alone. There so. You go. There's ways that you can go through and you can do that. Um, so definitely check out the pollinators documentary if you have not done so. That's but great. above and beyond all of that, the the whole thing though with today is try not to have knee-jerk reactions. Try mm-hmm. to stop and think logically through different scenarios and try to put yourself in the place or the mindset or the situation of some of your fellow beekeepers before you judge them or before you criticize them, especially. You know, if you have the urge to criticize them on social media, just turn it off, walk away, just don't do it. Like that's that's never the answer. So, you know, we need to try to be a better community amongst ourselves. And as you and Les say, we all rise together. So- Right, and then there's something else is that if we're all very tribal and very black and white and we think we're right and they're wrong, we cannot hear each other. Um, if we are trying to talk to people and share our ideas and maybe kind of meet halfway in some instances, then it behooves us to just kind of not be confrontational or very emotional about things. It behooves us to be informed, do our research, listen to what the other side is saying, and, and just kind of take it into account. It's not necessarily, you know, oh, they're, that's complete hogwash because it's not jiving with my ideas. You can still think about it. You can still listen to it. And, and, and just, you know, don't get sucked into the big emotional fights. It's not, it's only going to serve as entrenching the people on both sides. It doesn't work uh, to, if you're trying to spread a message or uh, be heard yourself, you also have to hear the others and uh, what they're saying. Absolutely. So 
I think that is a that's a kind of a perfect wrap up and scenario there on on all of this. So thank you everybody for bearing with us on this this discussion and this topic of bias. And uh, hopefully, you know, you don't have to agree with everything that we said, but at least right. you listen through all the way to the end, and maybe you can right. take some of those and think about them and see if any of that applies to you and and maybe ways that you can improve yourself or your beekeeping and and that's kind of what it's all about. So we really appreciate it, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. But until then, be good. Be mindful. <laughs> bye bye, everybody. Bye. This hive jive production was made possible by amazing patrons like you. And we appreciate your support. To all our Hive Jive junkies out there, you truly are the bee's knees. <laughs>